Hey everyone, this is Noah, the producer for Perspectives Unsettled. And before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to mention that you may hear some clicks and pops occasionally throughout this episode. We had some technical difficulties. We did some work to try and salvage what we could. We think ultimately that this conversation is really important and it's a really good conversation we want you to hear. Instead of trying to re-record the whole thing, we wanted to present this as naturally and as authentically as possible. So I'm sorry for the uh, inconvenience and a few clicks and pops here and there, um, but we really hope that you enjoy this episode. Hey guys, and welcome back to the second episode of Perspectives Unsettled. I am Emily Luttrell. And I am Ben Stewart. And with us is our producer, Noah Gray. Hello. And we're on our second episode, guys. Woohoo. That's pretty exciting. Great feedback from the first one. Yeah. we Some good stuff. Yeah. I'm glad people listened to it. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to that. Thanks for listening to the second one. So today we are kind of talking about some some heavier subjects that can be, feel a little pessimistic, feel a little hopeless. So I thought maybe we could start with some some lighthearted, fun mm-hmm. conversation. Ben, you I, got a great icebreaker. I've, I've got a great question for you, Emily. I'm ready. Noah, and I definitely welcome your chiming in on this too. Ben, you know I love your icebreakers. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's my favorite excel, thing about I excel with this. Meetings. I know. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Question for the podcast is, what are the two things that most annoy you when it comes to travel. I would qualify air travel, but if there's something that just really bugs you when you're like road tripping it, you can throw that in. I mean, or cattle cars. Trains. Yep. I think my, my first thing is on a plane, I cannot stretch my legs out whenever I sit in the, in the airplane seat. Like it's, and it's almost all the way there. Mm. And just knowing that I can't, I, it's the only thing I think about yeah. the whole time. Does it get worse when the person reclines then? It doesn't get better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it just sort of escalate everything yeah. inside of you. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like claustrophobia is just knowing that I can't do it. Right. There's no, it's, there's nothing solution. else I want more in the world at yeah. that point. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's a solid answer. I Thanks. get that. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a second one or do you, or, or do you want me or Noah to go next? Um, oh, I'm, I'm ready with my second okay. one. I, I think I'm learning that I'm really into, into comfort and chairs because my other thing is the, the chairs at every airport terminal are just the most uncomfortable Yeah, and you always end up sitting in them for like two hours and yep. you think it'll be fine. I'll, I'll do some work. I'll yep. read a book. It's not fine. And there's a, there's a no win-win situation. There's some chairs that do have arms, mm-hmm. which that stinks because if you want to lie down or stretch out, can't right. do that. But then with the chairs that don't have arms, when you just want to sit and rest your arm on something, the arm's not there. So it's never there when you need it. Yep. And it's always there when you don't want it. Mm-hmm. What about you, Ben? Um, I really cannot stand when I'm walking down the like the main terminal or hallway of the airport. And I typically walk at a little bit more brisk of a pace. <laughs> and I can't stand it when somebody, typically it's a new traveler, is in front of me. And then they just like stop to stare at something, mm-hmm. you know, like a restaurant menu or, you know, the ceiling or something like that. And they just stop right in front of me. And then I have to do some sort of 
you know, Barry Sanders type football move to get around them <laughs> and I'm twirling my suitcase and it's just really annoying. So that's, that's annoying. And then the second thing, there's a lot that annoys me. I'm going to be totally honest about <laughs> travel and other people. But, um, I, I would say the second thing is the airline that I typically fly on does a pretty good job of having like, okay, this group of people goes first then this group of people goes next Mm -hmm. like it's pretty orderly and and there's a purpose for that and it really frustrates me when people in front of me go into check in for the flight and the check-in person is like i'm sorry sir you're supposed to be boarding in like 20 minutes and it just throws everything off so Mm -hmm. it it's it's the stuff like that that gets me emily (laughs) Yeah, I like how mine are both about chairs and yours are both about people. Yeah. So. What is that? I'm not. Let's just move on to Noah. <laughs> Noah, what are yours? <laughs> um, traveling on the road, I think for me, it's the uh, it's the cycle of somebody pumped their brakes seven hours ago on <laughs> on the interstate, <laughs> and so now everybody is at a dead stop for about five hours, yep. and then you get to the point where it just speeds up for no reason uh, that drives me insane. But traveling by plane, I think it would be uh, the person that doesn't understand the geometry of the overhead bin space (laughs) and either tries to like ram in their, their carry on the wrong way when it's clearly labeled and there's a flight attendant standing next to them telling them not to do it that way. Yes. And they just continue to push and then they're holding up the line of people behind them and uh, they're adamant uh, that they're not going to valet check their bag. Yes. And then eventually they lose. Might I make a recommendation to you as our producer to include a link to the Brian Regan bit about (laughs) travel, which includes a very funny because it's accurate part uh, that references that. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Spot on. I can, I I think I can throw that in the, the podcast notes. Well, I'm glad now that I know next time we all travel together, I know exactly what to do to drive both of you crazy. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think you already knew that. (laughs) (laughs) It won't be shocking to hear that international missions work comes with its fair share of obstacles. Ministry and cross-cultural work are... Ministry and cross-cultural work are complicated enough separately, let alone when they're combined but sometimes the biggest obstacle that's in our way is our own reputation. Throughout the history of the church and of missions, we've created a lot of problems for ourselves. Problems like cultural ignorance and insensitivity, white savior attitudes in the Western church, hypocritical lifestyles of overconsumption that actively harm the earth and the environments where many missions efforts take place. This stuff hurts the witness of mission workers and the church, and it inhibits people from getting more involved. Talking about these issues, it can quickly feel like the conversation becomes negative and pessimistic and hopeless, especially when the issues are messy, complicated, systematic, and don't really have straightforward solutions. But acknowledging obstacles isn't the same as being resigned to them. These problems seem overwhelming, and while we can't pretend like they don't exist, we also can't just give up on what God has called us to do. Our own man-made attempts aren't what ultimately will overcome them but there are God-guided and spirit-empowered ways forward. And as we move forward, we have to address some of the issues and questions that surround the conversation of international missions today. Do missions workers do more harm than good, even with righteous intentions? 
And do those intentions absolve them of responsibility? How do we introduce the gospel into a new culture without destroying it? And how can we advocate for international travel when it could be damaging our environment, especially in impoverished and developing areas? So the first first thing I would say in response to what you just took us through, Emily, is first of all, I think it's really wise and, and important that we are mentioning, even in our second podcast, <laughs> the reality that there are obstacles. And so I appreciate that that is something we're emphasizing. As I look at sort of where this conversation probably is going to go over the next several minutes, one of the things that I wanted to maybe clarify or or delineate is um, not only that, yes, there are obstacles to mission. So when we talked in the last episode about the idea of God's mission, restoring, redeeming creation back to himself, it is important to note there are obstacles. This is not easy, mm-hmm. right? And that's why I appreciate that this episode is focusing on that. Maybe one other thing that I would want to delineate though, as we move into this, into this conversation is that there are obstacles that originate and come from the spiritual realm, if I could call it that. Mm -hmm. And we see that a lot in the book of Acts, for example, you see a lot of real clear moments and statements and even some crazy stories where there's clear opposition from a spiritual, uh, from a spiritual realm. But then there's also oppositions that we create ourselves just in our own fallenness, in our own brokenness. Um, sometimes those are unintended. Oftentimes those are unintended and sometimes they are intended, which is even more tragic. And so it's just something that I wanted to delineate that I think a lot of our focus in today's conversation is maybe on the latter category Mm -hmm. that a lot of the obstacles we experience and are maybe a little bit more in our face today are ones that we create ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, especially from our fallenness. And it's not that there are, it's not a dichotomy either. It's not like, well, it's either coming from the spiritual realm or our own fallen natural realm. In fact, many times they overlap and one leverages the other, but, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge not only that there are obstacles, but that there are sort of different places from which the obstacles originate. And what we're highlighting today are obstacles that typically, at least on a surface level, we, Mm -hmm. we create ourselves. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is definitely not an exhaustive kind of list of, of everything that is wrong with, with missions and in the faith today. And yeah, like you're saying in book of acts, which is, is kind of just chronicling all the different problems that missions workers face. And like you're saying, like, yeah, sometimes a storm comes up and a boat is diverted to a different city. Right. And sometimes people don't understand and are trying to make Gentiles follow Jewish rules. Right. So there's a difference and it gets messy and it's hard to say any kind of overarching solution or a rule to follow because there really isn't one because things are messier than we expect and want them to be. Yep. Yeah, that's good. So as we were preparing for this podcast, that was one thing that stood out to me that I just felt like I wanted to put some language around as we, Mm -hmm. especially as we go into like this first issue 
of the reputation of missions. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reputation of missions for what it is today is a reputation as a result of what we've created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think outside of kind of a church world or a faith-based community, when people think of like international missionaries or workers, they kind of think of like colonialism Mm -hmm. or imperialism, like the Western church sending white people to, to developing countries and conquering them or taking over them. And that kind of sounds like ancient history, but it does still have some impact Mm -hmm. with people today. Yeah. I mean, this is not a new, this is not a new challenge or this is not a new mistake. I mean, we see this, um, in, in ages past, you know, as, as glaring as things like the crusades all the way down to even more individual stories where you do see people being sent out from the church at large and trying to impose not just a faith ideology, but trying to impose cultural systems and ways of thinking um, over overlaying those on other cultures. So though it's not new, um, as you indicated, you're absolutely right that it is something that's still very prevalent that we have to be aware of, cognizant of, sensitive to, and really ensuring that we ourselves are not perpetuating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I read a really great article recently um, that we can link to in the show notes. I don't remember the author right now, but he was an African man who's lived in America and he was responding to the, the Coney 2012 campaign. If you remember that, um, yeah, it's called the white savior industrial complex. Yeah. It was really interesting. Um, and he was kind of responding to this movement that happened in 2011, 2012. It was a, a nonprofit organization that was American and they kind of had a mission to make this, this man famous who was a, like a, in Ghana or Uganda, sorry, Uganda, yep. Ugandan kind of warlord. Yep. Um, who was, doing all kinds of atrocities, kidnapping children and making them soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of had this massive campaign and collected a ton of money mm-hmm. and were like, we're going to make this guy famous. We're going to make him known and that's going to stop him right. somehow. Right. Um, and that this guy's response to it was just how misguided and unhelpful mm-hmm. and that whole movement even perpetuated this whole like, complicated race issues and devaluing mm-hmm. people. One of his points was that people from the Western church look at these developing countries and they don't see the people who are there who are already working, mm-hmm. you know, for their own country. Yeah. And they think, oh, they need, they've got some problems. I I can have some solutions. Yeah. And so they see all these separate problems um, and don't see how they might actually be connected to each other. Yep. Like I think the phrase he uses, you can see stars, but you don't see the constellation. Yeah. And that, um, that doesn't, the, the drive to help isn't coming from a bad place, but this whole attitude of assumptions of, I know what is right for these people without doing either research without being really connected with the people on the ground, mm-hmm. then it, it doesn't help and oftentimes hurts and mm-hmm. can stop people from being involved. Yeah. I wonder if, if a couple of questions that could help a person or an organization process through these things, these two questions. First, 
what's actually my motivation in doing this? Mm-hmm. And second, why am I so determined to use the means that I'm choosing to use in order to address these problems? Mm-hmm. So for example, being honest with ourselves okay, what is actually driving me to engage in whatever level of work it is, whether it's more, whether it has a more humanitarian bent, a more outreach evangelistic bent or what have you, what is actually driving my motivation behind it? Is it, is it the, you know, if we're being frank, is it the selfie moment where I can get the picture of myself? Is it the feel good drive? Is it, this is going to um, satiate my sense of purpose and looking for something to do mm-hmm. that is awesome? Or is there actually a more kingdom driven, and I would even use like story of God, biblical sense of what's driving this, uh, what, what is the motive? And then to the, to the why, like, why am I using the means that I'm wanting to use? Mm-hmm. Again, I- am I using these means because this is what I think is best? Am I using these means because it elevates me or it elevates my organization or it elevates whatever? Yeah. And another question I think would be great is, am I the person who's supposed to be doing this? Right. Um, just thinking of like, I mean, whenever I was in high school, I went on a mission trip and I built a house like that was really well-intentioned and I appreciate the opportunity I had, but I, I have, I was 15 and I had no idea what I was doing. You, you weren't the most skilled labor I, in, the, in the area. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I was probably not the most qualified person who could have done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. I, I mixed a lot of cement and uh-huh. I, I got pretty good at that at the yep. end of the week. But yep. even like, I remember going on that trip and driving away on our last day and we hadn't finished and we didn't do a great job. And I just remember seeing like the people who live there come up and just start working and doing it themselves. Basically redoing, Basically un- undoing fixing, and redoing everything. Yeah, <laughs> fixing exactly. everything I had tried to yep. do. Um, and well, yeah, it, it's one of the things that I love about the type of work that we get to be part of is we really try to make the, the national believers the hero of the story, if mm-hmm. you will. Like how do we, coming in in a posture of how can we help these national frontline workers um, yeah, be the hero, like be the, be the, the headline, if you will. It's, it's not about, all right, let's get Uncharted's name. Let's get our name, you know, individually, but thinking about our partners in the city of Belgrade, like what is the vision and the heart that God has given them to reach their city? And what are the little ways that we can, we can come alongside and support that. So really highlighting and elevating the position and the expertise of the national, the indigenous to the culture Mm -hmm. versus us. I think partnering with national believers, with people who are indigenous to the country, we want to participate in missions work with in, um, that kind of can help this idea of, of, of saving people, maybe from their own saving Western church people from their own kind of, um, attitudes towards white saviorism. But I think that also is really important when we think about going into a place with cultural sensitivity Mm -hmm. and respect. Um, There is a really interesting book that I had to read in college, actually, called One Church, Many Tribes. It's by Richard Twist. And it's about missions efforts to Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting in in the sense that... um, so white people would go to 
reservations or just into these communities and tell them that they have to change everything about their culture, mm. like their history. Um, they have to leave everything behind. They can't play the same music. They can't wear the same clothes and they have to become basically identical to, to the white mm. church. It, even to the point where there were native Americans who, who did believe in the gospel um, and they wouldn't call themselves Christians mm. because Christianity was, was the white people's religion. Mm. It was what was used for violence um, and for conformity. And they would say that they follow the Jesus way instead. Mm. Um, and so that, and that wasn't like, that's not history either. That's recent. Right. That's, um, and that I think is a really interesting conversation around like what, when you go into a new culture or a new community, like appreciating what they have already and not trying to change everything about them. Um, we kind of bring in all these assumptions of what church looks like, what Christianity looks like. And if it doesn't look like the Western church, then it must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to like a massive disservice to the people we're trying to reach, but also just to the church as a whole. Well, and even to take it a step further, I don't think it just stops at appreciating a certain culture, but I would even say discovering in what ways is God already present in that culture or mm-hmm. in what ways is God already displaying and and almost like giving hints to his good news in that culture. So I'm, what I'm not advocating for is syncretism, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, of just like, oh, peace, whatever you want. And, and that's faith. But what I am saying is, yeah, there, it's arrogant for us to assume that when we come into a new culture, a culture that's new to us, rather, that God isn't already been working in that space, that the only culture that reflects God's character mm-hmm. is our is our Western culture. That Obviously, that's incredibly arrogant sounding. And yet we do operate that way. And typically, stereotypically. And so to not only come into a culture and say, hey, what can I learn to appreciate? That's a really good starting place. But even to take it a step further and say, where is God already on display in this culture? And in fact, what are things that I can discover? What are things that I can learn about God from this culture that I've never realized before being in my own culture? Mm -hmm. And putting, putting another culture in a place of honor like that versus coming in um, uh, with the assumption that God is not present already. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And there's, um, there's another book I had read in college about um, missionaries to uh, Aborigines in Australia. Mm. And there's really interesting comparison between different, like, like with any kind of movement or any group of people there are people who do it right and people who do it wrong and comparing the missionaries experience to each other has been interesting because mm. there would be people whenever Australia was being populated by Europe in like 1800s, there are missionaries who'd go and then they would say Aborigines are savages. They have no understanding of anything higher than themselves. They're basically animals. Mm. And then there'd be missionaries who say like these people have a deep, profound understanding of creation mm. and the world and they know how to celebrate it. And they have like an understanding of, of higher beings who, who've created mm. things yep. and that, um, just going into a posture of listening yep. and learning, you, 
not only learn more about the people you're trying to reach, but you can appreciate different aspects and characteristic characteristics of who God is. So I was wondering if in your experience with missions, if you've seen similar things happen now where people go into a community that's different from theirs um, and then try to to implement um, kind of their idea of what Christianity should look like at the expense of the the local culture. Sure. So my short answer is yes, um, I have seen that. And if I'm being totally honest, probably if I look back enough in, intently, I've probably even participated in it mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And so you have individual examples where I've seen it or like smaller quote unquote examples where I've seen it in this goes to what you were saying earlier, the example you gave, like when you went on a short-term missions trips and you've got Mm -hmm. a 15 year old, you know, young lady from Midwest America trying to build a home. Mm -hmm. Um, so there I've participated in things like that when I was growing up, you know, coming in and assuming that I'm the one who should be drilling this well or digging this ditch or building this church building. Um, and that's probably one big example is we have trained I think a lot of developing countries to believe that the way to do church correctly is to have a church building mm-hmm. and that it is necessary to have some level, you know, the, the bigger, the better, the more, the, the better material of the building, the better we've kind of perpetuated this mindset that church equals a nice church building. Now I'm not saying that there's not a significant place or a legitimate place for a church building. I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I do think that's one little but significant example where we have either intentionally or subconsciously created this Western mindset of what church equals. Mm -hmm. It equals a building. Um, Maybe a more current and very public example of, of well-intended, but, but, probably some negative side effects would be the John Chow story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of nuance to that story that probably we don't have time to, you know, address <laughs> both sides of it. So I'm not saying it's all negative or all positive, but there's right. definitely things on both sides to learn from that. John Chow was an American man who traveled to this remote island off the coast of India called North Sentinel with the intention to bring the gospel to these, this tribe of people who have never heard. They are an extremely remote tribe. It's actually illegal for people to approach them or, or visit this island because they're so remote that the, the Indian government wants to protect their culture, their way of life, but also protect them from illnesses and viruses that they just haven't built up an, an immunity to. So John Chow goes, he bribes some fishermen to drop him off of this island, and he is killed within one or two days um, of landing there. And the the response to, the, to his story has been really interesting. The kind of just world media, secular news stations, um, and the reaction to his story has been really mixed. Like the, the world media, secular news outlets have been kind of um, dismissive maybe a little bit of what he was trying to do, criti- critical of how he went about it, saying he was underprepared, um, he didn't speak the language, he was being extremely reckless with 
with going into this new community, um, not knowing whether or not just illnesses or whatever kind of bacteria he may have that could, you know, completely wipe out most of these people, if not all of them. But even Christian media outlets have been kind of mixed with how they how they respond, saying that he shouldn't have broken the law. He should have been more prepared. Other people should have done this, even saying that his actions were reckless and that that could put Christians in India who are being persecuted at risk. So this story is a commentary on a lot of things. Uh, I think Ed Stetzer has a really great article that he actually the Washington Post reached out to him. And in our podcast notes, we'll have a link to to his article because I think it gives a pretty fair, if there's maybe one document to read on it, it gives a pretty fair assessment of the story. It gives sort of both sides of it. Like what are the things to be learned? What are the criticisms of it? But also what are the good things that we can take away from the story? And, and so on the one hand, you can't ignore Like this, this story is a commentary of a few things. You can't ignore that scripture does call us to actively engage in mission, right? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. consistent in the gospels. It's super profound in the book of acts. And then it's lived out in, as, as we see in the epistles and the rest of the new Testament. So you can't ignore like John Cho is giving us a really tangible example of someone who's going boldly, Mm -hmm. who's, who's living on mission. So there's some interesting things to learn from there. It's also a commentary though on, our culture and how our culture, both in the church and as a secular culture, views the word missions and the concept of missions incredibly different today than it did even 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Ed Stetzer does a nice job of comparing the John Cho story to um, the story of of the man who went to Ecuador. Um, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. Thank you. The name was escaping me. Jim Elliott and how those two different stories were received completely different mm-hmm. by our, by the, by their equivalent modern, modern day culture. So there's a lot that the John Cho story reveals, not just about missions, but also about our culture and our perceptions of missions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kind of, it's hard to, to take just like one aspect of the story, because as soon as you start asking or answering one question, more come up. So you think like, okay, well, is this something he should have done? Just even with the idea of he could have exposed people to illnesses that would have led to death, that could have led to um, this whole tribe being wiped out. And then that kind of leads to the question of, well, if he's trying to save like them from eternal damnation, isn't it worth it? And then that kind of leads to this idea of like, well, is it really a Christian philosophy to say that the ends will justify the means? Yeah, so this is this is where keeping keeping the activity and the engagement of missions in its appropriate place is really important. Now, I want to add the immediate caveat that this is not a theological our primary purpose for this podcast is not to discuss theology. Mm-hmm. So, there's that caveat. <laughs> With that though, I would say engaging in missions is incredibly important. In fact, it's not just something we participate in. I would say we are by nature as Christians. It's our identity. Mm -hmm. We are on mission. I would advocate though, and this is where I point back to my caveat about we're not a theological (laughs) podcast. I would advocate though that God's mission, so his mission at large to redeem and restore creation back to himself is not 
at the mercy of human activity. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think that he involves human activity in a very intentional and purposeful way. I think it's his primary way through which missions mission takes place. And so I'm obviously a strong advocate for people engaging in God's mission. Mm -hmm. I've committed my vocation to it, but we have to be humble and honest about the place that human activity takes in God accomplishing his mission. God's mission is not at the mercy of my activity. All of that to say, if God desires that a certain people or a certain person is going to know him, God has at his availability other means by which Mm -hmm. he can reveal himself to those people. Yeah, you hear stories from all these kind of inaccessible countries and parts of the world where missions isn't really taking place very much. And people are believing in Jesus. They're having dreams and visions and they're becoming Christians maybe even before they have heard someone say the name Jesus or that it's been explained to them. And I think maybe the takeaway that we can have is that, yes, there are people who are unreached and we should be working towards creative solutions to reach people who maybe we can't actually contact because we don't want to introduce illnesses to them or there are countries where we're not allowed to to visit at all or it's legal to to talk about the gospel or to say the name of Jesus but while we're doing that we shouldn't have to despair um, or we don't have to be hopeless that these people are just completely unsaved that God cannot reach them without us um, and just knowing that he is powerful and it's not just completely relying on us and our endeavors, I think makes the whole situation a lot, a lot more hopeful for all of us. So the last topic I want to talk about is a little bit of a departure from the previous two, and it is about pursuing global missions in a warming world. We are living in a world of climate change and pollution and carbon emissions. How do we steward creation responsibly, which is one thing God has also called us to, but also tr- go to the ends of the earth to bring his message to all people. You know, you kind of learn all these things that plane travel is just like the worst for the environment and carbon emissions and all of this pollution and all of the kind of the the waste of our lives of excess. It all greatly impacts developing countries far more than it does our countries. And so, you know, we go to these places and we want to be the light of Jesus to them and we want to bring hope and restoration. In the meantime, the travel it took to get there, it can be damaging their environment and the the lives we leave back home can really greatly negatively impact how they live day to day. So I, I really appreciate that you're bringing this up and I will very quickly admit that this this is not an area where I'm an expert by a long shot. Not only that, I will, I'll take it a step further and admit that this is even to a certain degree somewhat like new thinking for mm-hmm. me, but I love that we're not only thinking about it, but that we're talking about it. Because even going back to, again, the last episode and sort of my own personal working definition of, of mission, God's mission isn't just to redeem and restore humans 
to himself. God's mission is to redeem and restore, restore all of creation to himself. Mm-hmm. And, and that is affirmed right out of the gate in Genesis chapter one, before the fall, our purpose is given to us uh, in the sense of, of creation care, of stewarding. You use that word stewarding. And I think that's the key, one of the key ideas in this part of the conversation. And so, yeah, again, just to be totally honest, like, I think this is something that, that we need to pay attention to. I don't know great solutions to, you know, okay, every time I get on a plane, how much, how much dollars am I contributing to fuel Mm -hmm. that's being spread around the world? You know, does that equate to, all right, let's go plant 20 trees. And maybe it is simple things like that. I don't know. But I do think that we, we almost have like a mandate to be cognizant of this and to even discover small ways, even if they feel insignificant to find small ways to say, okay, as a mission organization, it's not just about God restoring and redeeming humans back to himself, but all of creation. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what our particular focus is, in our case, church planting, discipleship multiplication, how do we express a sensitivity and awareness to this? Yeah. And I know that Noah has kind of looked into this more, especially in terms of like actual responses you could take. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of want to hear what he has learned. Um <laughs> in all his research that he's done. Yeah, this has been something that's been on my mind for for a little bit now. I've always been uh, somewhat environmentally conscious uh, as a person. And in the last two and a half years of being with Uncharted, it's, it's, I would say it's not been lost, but it's actually grown on me that the effects I may be having on people um, on the other side of the world um, who don't necessarily have the means that we do things like, like plastic pollution and carbon pollution, they affect everyone, but often it's people who, uh, have fewer means who, um, live with, with much less who are affected by it more dramatically. Our beaches are clean. The same can't be said for beaches in, in India and Myanmar and Mm -hmm. in places like that. Um, and often the plastic ends up there. So one of the ways that, um, as I've been researching more about how to be a good steward of my resources, how to be a good steward of, of the earth, knowing that my job does take me around the world a little bit, um, is, is utilizing carbon offsets. It might seem small. It might seem fairly insignificant, um, but it's utilizing carbon offsets. If you Google carbon offset, you'll see uh, in the first page a bunch of um, a bunch of results that give you a definition of what carbon offsets are, um, why they're important, and different places that you can donate. Basically, a carbon offset is a reduction in emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. So. Um, methane and, and nitrous oxide uh, made in order to compensate for emissions made elsewhere. Um, so what typically happens is, let's say um, I go overseas and I, uh, let's say I'm going over to Europe and that's about a nine hour flight both ways somewhere. Um a typical emission for that would be about 1.32 tons of carbon. And 
different resources will tell you different numbers, but to offset that, it costs about $7.76 per ton um, to offset. Um, so that would be about $10 uh, to offset that. Mm. Th- that money uh, collected is actually funneled into uh, projects um, that help to offset greenhouse gases. And that can be reforesting areas that are deforested. That can be um, things like, actually there was one in Myanmar that was completely funded. It was called Sea of Change, Mm. um, where in Myanmar only 16% of the original mangrove forest remains along its coastline. These mangrove forests help reduce harmful CO2 emissions, give people an opportunity to live um, sustainable and profitable lives. Um, it's part of the ecology of Myanmar. And so this project was funded in order to help plant 5 million more trees than the 5 million they have already replanted in this area. It's a, it may feel like a drop in a, in the bucket, but Mm -hmm. every little bit helps. And so, yeah, one of the ways you can do that is by going online and donating to, uh, places to offset your travel. One of the resources that I found is called Cool Effect, and I'll link that in the um, the podcast notes. They give you a really easy and really simple way of estimating how much uh, carbon you're you're emitting when you travel, and a really easy and simple way to donate uh, to these projects in order to help offset your travel. You can take it a step further and. Uh, average how much you're offsetting per year and donate more just for example the average american uh the average american emits about 16.6 tons of carbon every year a frequent flyer uh, (laughs) emits about 50 tons of carbon every year (laughs) small things like that though can make a huge impact yeah not just for for us but for people all around the world Okay, podcast listener, here's something that you can hold Uncharted accountable to over the next couple of months is I'm going to talk to our global operations director about how we can start to direct even a small percentage of all of our trip participant funds into something like this cool effect type organization. I think it'd be awesome if... For every trip participant that goes on a trip with Uncharted, we have some sort of aspect of their funding that goes to offsetting this. So rather than just talking about it, we actually participate in it. That's great. And even encouraging people to take it a step further and for themselves decide that this is what I'm going to do for my travel. I've decided for myself that I'm going to do this for my travel, whether that's for work or for vacation or what have you. I'm going to do that this year because... Uh, I really feel called to to commit to that. So it's really exciting to hear that that you want to commit to so really helping in, in small ways. We'll see if some listener out there holds us accountable to this <laughs> and shoots us an email or a, or whatever to, to see if we've done it. <laughs> yeah, and I think just one, maybe the most important thing that people can do is just to remember this and, and think... Uh, maybe a little more critically than we're used to about how much we travel and what's the impact of that. And and even like, where are my clothes made? And is the person who made them getting paid fairly? And um, where does my food come from? And am I being responsible um, with, with that? There's just, just even considering that and thinking, thinking about it goes, goes a long way. 
So we've heard a little bit about how we can steward our resources well to to protect our environment, to protect the world around us. What do we do or what are some ways that we can repair the reputations and the failings of the past and move forward in missions? How do we become more proactive to prevent falling into these same traps that people have fallen into in the past? I think one thing um, that we, we mentioned a little bit earlier is just being extremely intentional of, of connecting with local uh, nationals wherever it is that we want to pursue missions. Um, that just going in with a posture of listening and learning and finding out what is already happening in, in the community we want to be a part of. Um, learning from people who have experienced what works and what doesn't work. Um, and then really getting to know the culture and, and what they believe, um, not just about God and religion, but about family and community um, and time and success and failure. Um, I think going in with humility is is extremely important and and just acknowledging that other people might know more about the, the work you want to pursue than you do. Um, will go a long way in helping kind of, uh, curb, curb the kind of attitudes that have done a lot of harm. Wholeheartedly agree with that. And so my comment would complement it and just say, so there's an expression that I like a saying that I like where it goes, we, we breathe our own exhaust, which kind of gives the idea of like, it's hard for us to see our own mistakes, to mm-hmm. see our own shortcomings. And so I guess my encouragement, my response to these questions would be have the humility and also the courage to allow outside voices and outside perspectives speak into whatever way you're engaged with mission and let them give input on, are you going about it the right way? And what are the results, the the results that you're having? Are they good results? So actively pursue some outside perspective, actively invite some people who have fresh eyes um, to, to give evaluation and feedback about what sort of impact are you actually having in the way that you're engaging in mission, whether that's locally, globally, whether that's in your neighborhood, in your community, or getting on a plane and going somewhere internationally. So now, my friends, let us be honest with the sobering truth that many obstacles stand in the way of God's mission advancing and going forth, and sadly, many of which stem from our own fallenness and brokenness. But let us also find comfort in this reality, that the God we serve, our Father who has called us into his mission, he is the Waymaker. Yes, the obstacles are many and diverse that come against the mission of God lived out. Doors shut, resistance flares up, courage fades, complexities overwhelm, bridges collapse, integrity is compromised, focus gets lost, soil remains hard, mistakes are made. These and many others are the formation of what feels like insurmountable obstacles against the advancement of God's good news of love, forgiveness, mercy, and truth. But 
Our hope is this. We serve the way-making God. When we come across the obstacle that looms in front of us like an impassable mountain, we recall that He is the God capable of throwing it down, opening the way before us. When we stand on the precipice of a valley with no clear way to cross, we remember that He is the God who is able to not just build bridges, but completely fill in the void creating an abundance of space and ways upon which to advance. When paths are crooked, when the way forward seems turbulent and rough, when we are unsure of the next step or where to go next, that is when we remember that our God is the way-making God. So today, dear friends, take courage. Whatever obstacle is keeping you from living out the mission of God, may you begin to see with the Father's eyes, that there is a way forward because there is a way maker.